Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Welcome to another fabulous Talking Movies. This time we're going to be talking to Joe McBride, about the fabulous Cohen brothers. Doug, how are you today? And have you ever heard of the Cohen brothers who are by far the most and probably the only successful brother writing, producing, directing team? I've heard of them more than I've heard of any other. Hi, John. I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, I must tell you, first of all, a really big compliment to you because we finished the interview with Joe McBride the other day, and I sent you a bunch of pictures. You added the pictures magnificently, which really enhances the interview a lot. And then you surprised me. You remember, uh, do you remember Silence of the Lamb, Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Perkins? One of the greatest movies ever. And one of the greatest villains ever. But that villain was taught by old country, no country for old men. Did you see that film? Oh, another great film. Oh, my God. Well, you and uh, the guy's name is Bardeem. The greatest heavy I have ever seen in a movie. And the way you inserted him in the interview with Joe today is just absolutely fantastic. So I want to thank you so much for that. So now let's get to Joe McBride. Oh, my God. I can't tell you, Joe. How thankful I am that you are here to talk to me now about the Cohen brothers, because they indeed are two of my favorites. And I know how monumentally swamped you are. But could I ask you why, with the Cohen brothers as a subject, you put yourself up there in Monument Valley or wherever you are? Well, my favorite director is John Ford, who established Monument Valley as a film site, but it's also the opening shot of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Coen brothers' last film together. And it's, uh, you know, you see Buster Scruggs riding through Monument Valley, and he's singing, and uh, it's the classic Western setting. Well, you are a classic writer. The book, The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers, is going to be an absolutely fantastic read. The wonderful thing about the Coen brothers to me is their fingerprints are all over their films. You can identify 
those guys just by the wonderful work they do and that wonderfully warped sense of humor. But you as a writer are monumentally surprising because whether you're writing about John Ford or William Wyler or even your favorite, I guess, Orson Welles, the reading of your work about their films is as entertaining as watching the films themselves. Thank you. And I've got to tell you, I always learned something absolutely, totally new from you at the very beginning, because my very, very favorite Christmas movie, you know what I'm going to say, mm. of all time, is that wonderfully warped, filthy but funny, Bad Santa. <laughs> and okay. I, and okay. I always saw, thought Bad Santa was as good as it was because it was... I mistakenly thought it was written by Billy Bob Thornton. And now I understand it was written by the Coen brothers. Well, they were executive producers, but uh, maybe they um, dabbled in, uh, you know, with the script, but they were executive producers, but not writers of the film. Well, can you imagine the Coen brothers being executive producers of any movie and not having a hand in some of the dialogue in it? Yeah. So, uh, 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 so, um, like you, I am interested in the beginnings of everything. Do you think Joel and Ethan were born and destined to be filmmakers? Well, they were kid filmmakers like Steven Spielberg, you know, in Minneapolis where the Coens grew up. They were making little films that were takeoffs on big Hollywood films and they were kind of warped satires apparently although we haven't seen them but from the descriptions uh it sounded like they were doing their genre parodies even as little boys and they were watching a lot of movies they they said they liked uh, sergio leone more than john wayne for example they thought john wayne was square but they liked uh once upon a time in the west uh shot here in monument valley because they said it was a strange film they liked strange takes on genres what was what was the first thing that drew you to the Cohen brothers? First, uh, the band, and then what made you decide to do such tremendous research and write so lovingly about them? Thank you. Uh, well, I was trying to remember back. I think Fargo really grabbed me, and you know, I actually had a little bit of a problem with Fargo when I first saw it because I'm from uh, Milwaukee and the Cohens are from Minneapolis, and they were. Um, kind of making fun of the midwestern dialect and and uh way of talking like uh oh hello you know uh, where are the groceries hon you know and, <laughs> and uh I've, i i thought this was a little insulting because there's kind of a tendency to make fun of what they call the flyover parts of the country uh there's a kind of condescension toward it but uh then i went back home to milwaukee for christmas i guess it was and I found that all my relatives there just loved the film. And they, they said, oh, isn't it wonderful that people like us are on the screen and they talk just like us and it's just great, you know? And I kind of thought, oh, this is actually sort of a loving homage to their roots uh, that they, they grew up. Uh, they were a little alienated from uh, the Midwestern ethos being uh, Jewish outsiders in Minneapolis. They, they, they said that was kind of a strange feeling. Uh, uh, it was kind of, you know, little community uh, on the fringes of, of Minneapolis. And they dealt with that in a serious man. Uh, the whole film made in uh, Minneapolis all about 
a Jewish uh, man who's beset with all kinds of problems, including uh, anti-Semitic neighbors. And just but why on earth would the Cohen brothers feel that way about this magnificent industry started by Jewish haberdashers? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, uh, they know? love they love the uh, well, they love movies, but uh, you know they they've not they've never quite been in the mainstream of Hollywood filmmaking. They uh, it, most of their funding in recent years, at least, has come from Europe. They're they're more popular in France than they are in America. They make such quirky films. You know, Hollywood today tends to make films that are very safe and pre-tested genre uh, films, sequels, you know, uh, uh, franchise movies. And the Coens don't do that. Every Coen Brothers movie is different from all the other ones they've made. So they're, they're, it's hard to predict what they're going to do. And uh, they've made a, a couple films that are big hits. Uh, True Grit made a lot of money. And um, uh, Fargo, Fargo, for example, did well, but it was more on home video. You know, like Big Lebowski was another one. There wasn't a gigantic hit at the box office, but it caught on as a cult movie on home video. So they're not exactly mainstream Hollywood guys. And they, they really kind of loathe Hollywood to some extent. If you, you know, look at Barton Fink, which is... I love that film. But you know, in Fargo, I get very nervous and very squeamish at that scene. I don't know where they chop up wood or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that is so tough. But to me, they stand out no matter where they are. I think even before I was a critic, I stumbled upon Raising Arizona. And I thought, my God, whoever did this is terrific. Yeah, they, they certainly had a distinctive voice. And uh, even before that, Blood Simple, they that was a very low-budget film, and they cobbled that together with money from investors in, in Minnesota. And uh, that was a, kind of in the classic film noir tradition. But Racing Arizona was really distinctive in the sense of they, the way they blend comedy and violence and uh it's it's controversial and and one thing i do in my book the holder in human comedy about them is uh, i answer their critics and i sort of structure the book around objections that people make to them because even though they're they're you know they win oscars and they get can film festival awards and a lot of critics love them there are a lot of detractors out there and i think that they're misunderstood to some extent so I, I think it's a good rhetorical strategy, but it's a way of kind of defining who they are and who they aren't. Um, for example, some people say they're nihilists or misanthropes or juvenile mockers, you know, glib, et cetera. And I don't think so. I think they go a lot deeper. To me, they're the sons of Billy Wilder. You know, uh, I just wrote a book on Billy Wilder, too, that came out in the fall and Billy Wilder dancing on the edge, but they're they're in that tradition of social satire. And Wilder also blended uh, comedy and uh, serious drama in daring ways that offended some people because some a lot of Americans don't like things mixed up. In Europe, they're more kind of but, into, but the, into the thing that. is, that's what life is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comedy and tragedy for crying out loud. Exactly. I, I often quote to my screenwriting students the thing John Lennon said, which I think is a good motto for screenwriters. He said, life is what happens when you're making other plans. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I mean, that is truly, truly brilliant. <laughs> yeah, oh. you're, you're doing something you think is serious and then something comical happens to you or vice versa, and you just have to deal with it. 
And Billy Wilder in the apartment, he and I, Al Diamond, who's co-writer, they had a scene where Jack Lemmon finds out that Shirley MacLaine is having sex with his boss and he's very upset and he goes and gets drunk on Christmas Eve and picks up a, a, a drunken, goofy woman and takes her back to his apartment. And it's all sort of farcical, but sad in a way. But then he finds out that McLean has overdosed in his apartment and he's, he has to get rid of his pickup. It, it's comedy and drama literally intersecting and, and in a very daring way. And they said, if that scene worked, the film would work, but if it didn't work, it might not. But the Cone brothers do things that are as daring as that. Like, for example, you mentioned the wood chipper scenes where they're feeding uh, people oh. into the wood chipper. It's really ghastly. It, but it's, it starts out as kind of a larky comedy with this uh, kind of wacky guy uh, played by William, William H. Macy, Jerry Lundergaard, who's uh, foolish but you kind of like him anyway, but he does just terribly stupid things. And um, he thinks he can get away with uh, hiring a couple guys to kidnap his wife and, and get money out of her father, which is idiotic. But the Coens, um, <clears throat> they, they love their idiotic characters because we're all kind of idiots at some level underneath everything else. And, and um, I, I often... Uh, you know, it took me a little while to, to catch on to the Coen brothers, I think, because uh, they are very distinctive and different. And Fargo, um, it, it, you know, at first I thought it was funnier than than grim. And, and then you, you really catch on to how dark and grim the film is because the surface is kind of larky and fun. And, and uh, Marge Gunderson is such a wonderful character played by Francis McDormand, the police chief. And, and did, didn't... Uh, didn't... Uh, one of the brothers marry her? Yeah, yeah, she's she's uh, married to Joel uh, Cohen, and she's in his uh, recent film, The Tragedy of Macbeth, playing Lady Macbeth opposite Denzel Washington. And the Cohns are taking a hiatus from working together right now, and we'll see how, how long that lasts. I don't know if it's permanent or not. They don't know themselves. Ethan apparently wants to go off and work on plays, which he's done before, and other forms of writing, and Joel made the Macbeth film on his own. I guess Ethan didn't have any interest in that particular project, but Frances McDormand is in several of their films and she's a great actress. And, uh, but she's, she's perhaps their most lovable character. And that's one reason Fargo is a beloved film, I think. Well, they, uh, I tuned into them right away. And I guess I tuned into them right away because uh, coming from a tough background, I had to turn that uh, Terrible shit into funny, funny fertilizer, yeah, which, yeah. Which, which they seem to do in their in their films. So I latched on them to them immediately. And also the other, another movie of theirs that I watch every time it comes on. Every time a, a Coen Brothers movie comes on, I will stop and watch. As a matter of fact, about four days ago, I think it came back on Showtime or HBO, which I think you mentioned it earlier. Blood Simple. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten how effective and scary that film was. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a scary film. It's disturbing. Um, it's a little more straight disturbing than some of their other films where it mixes things up, you know, because there, there are some sweet, funny scenes in Fargo and then there's some ghastly, grisly scenes, you know, it's, it's, um, Barton Fink is a horrific film about Hollywood, but it's kind of funny in a black humor way, like uh, Kafka or Nathaniel West is. Exactly. That's why I love it, because it's about to writers. But then also look at the big Lebowski. Has Jeff Bridges ever been more adorable than yeah, in that film? 
He's so great. And, and, and I, he's just so iconic and wonderful as the perpetually stoned guy, but he's, he's kind of a takeoff on Philip Marlowe. You know, the Coen brothers, I mentioned they, they like Hollywood genre films that they like to make fun of, but they said that uh, their main influences are not movies, they're writers. The writers that they're influenced by the most are Raymond Chandler and Flannery O'Connor and a couple of other writers. And uh, they, they like people who are uh, trenchant, you know, uh, that you can see the, the mystery influence in Raymond Chandler. Uh, Big Lebowski is kind of like a Raymond Chandler movie for, uh, you know, the modern era with a kind of a, a stone guy. But Chandler's Philip Marlowe was was a man of honor and uh, decency, kind of like uh, the dude is. He's, he's a, a, good, a good-natured, honest guy in the midst of all these dangerous, crazy characters like Philip Marlowe was. And that's, that's kind of their influence in that film, I think. Well, the, uh, I can't quite remember the name of the very, very, uh, Clooney, George Clooney. Um, I sort of like him. He has a kind of pleasant quality, a little bit like Jimmy Stewart or Gary Cooper, I guess. Mm-hmm. Not, not a huge fan, except for, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah, he's wonderful, and uh, Tim Blake Nelson, and uh, uh, there's just wonderful characters in that film, and uh, John Turturro, who's one of their favorite actors, is just such a good trio of oddball characters in, in the in the South during the Depression, and uh, you know what's great, uh, I think one of the reasons that film became such a favorite was the music is fantastic, isn't it? The bluegrass. And oh country. my gosh, it is yeah. thrilling stuff. Yeah, yeah, I got I got the CD of it at the time. The CD uh, sold uh, like hotcakes, and you know it, they they have such good taste in um, American folk music and pop music, and they they put that together. You know, like John Ford does that too. He's he loves American popular music, and um, there's something really great atmospheric uh, uh, quality about uh, using the music of the period that's uh, they they but one thing they do that's interesting that confounds people sometimes is they mix up periods and uh, uh, some facts for example Papio Daniel the, uh, the the governor character in that film he was actually the governor of another state but um, it, it, they moved him into Mississippi and, you know, they, they play around Miller's Crossing. You're never quite sure what city it actually takes place in. And the time period is, it's in the prohibition era, but it's a little vague, you know, and they, they, um, in, in, um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I love, uh, Western anthology film that they made for Netflix, um, at the beginning of the film, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, the singing cowboy, is singing Cool Water, which is a 19, <laughs> 19, 1936 song that the Sons of the, Sons of the Pioneers made into a big hit. It's really anachronistic. He wouldn't be singing in the Old West, but they don't care because it's a nice song and it fits the tone of the film. It's fantastic. You know, they. I think the only other director that used music is effectively was Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, he has a great taste in music. He likes classical music. Um, one reason he did that was he, he didn't like being dependent on uh, film composers. Like he, for example, he hired Alex North to do the score of 2001. Then he didn't like the score, so he threw it out. And he was using as temp music as he was cutting the film. And or maybe when he was writing the film with Arthur C. Clarke, he would play classical pieces and then he would get thinking of them as integral to the visuals and so for example he put on uh, the beautiful blue danube with the space station yeah oh my gosh a waltz a waltz in the universe and then 
you can't hear the opening of what is it? Thus spoke Zarathustra. Right, right. Without thinking of that fantastic film. Yeah, it just is perfect. And there's this timeless quality when you use um, classical music. He used some some modern uh, avant-garde music too. But um, to have a, a, a standard film score, Alex North, I didn't think was the greatest composer. Uh, he did a couple of good scores, but a lot of his scores were kind of... Uh, uh, simplistic, I thought, and so. But Kubrick didn't like the fact that he would say write a score, and then the guy would come in like sh- soon before shooting, and there wasn't a lot of chance for him to control it. But he could control, in a sense, the classical music because he would pick exactly the the uh, pieces he wanted, and he would use the greatest orchestras in the world. So now the, you, you come to the point where you want to write a book about the Cohen brothers. Did you get did you get a chance to either talk to either one of the brothers or anybody who worked closely with them? And what was that like? No, I didn't. Uh, you know, uh, John, when I started writing film books, I was writing critical studies back in Wisconsin. And I didn't you know, I wasn't in California and I had really very limited access to film people. So I wrote a critical study of Orson Welles for four years when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Then I wrote a critical study of John Ford with my friend Michael Wellington, who died recently. And then I moved to California and I started, you know, having access to people to interview. And I I did an interview book with Howard Hawks. For seven years, I interviewed Hawks, mainly because I wanted to learn from him because he was such a great storyteller. And I was trying to teach myself screenwriting. And then I realized I had enough to do a book and I, I put it together as Hawks on Hawks. But when I left uh, the film industry in 1984, I, I, I got tired of being a screenwriter because they're not treated well in Hollywood. Um, but I decided to write a biography for the first time. Well, I'd written a short biography of Kirk Douglas. I don't exactly put that in the same category as my Frank Capra book because the Capra book was a very large endeavor. It took seven and a half years, tremendous amount of research, a uh, very iconoclastic book. It, it unmasked him as... Uh, of kind of a fraudulent figure is public image doesn't match the reality. So that, that was a huge uh, project. So I wrote biographies of Capra, Ford and Spielberg. And uh, frankly, uh, I don't write those anymore because I can't afford to They're they, they bankrupt you every time you do one, you get an advance because you need an advance to do a biography. You have to travel a lot and there are a lot of expenses and you have to live on it, but it's never enough. And so I was pouring whatever money I had into those books. And I was, when I did the Ford biography, it took about 30 years of research off and on. Oh my I, God. I, I often work on several projects at the same time and then one comes closer to fruition. So I began concentrating on Ford. I did a hundred magazine articles in the last two years of working on the Ford book, which is kind of amazing to me that you know, I, was do, I was doing two a week. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how I did that, but I needed to bring in money and I wrote a television show and things like that. And at the end of it, I was really broke and uh, I, I just can't, live like that anymore and it, it you know they don't sell enough unfortunately the problem is film books are not as popular as they used to be and they were never terribly popular anyway um the only okay, film do you, do you think then in that case that the cohen brothers book will do better in europe than it would here well that's an interesting thought the publisher uh, anthem press is a british company they also have an american office but they're they're basically british and uh, although the head of the company lives in the United States, but they contacted me uh, just, I was going to 
close the circle on this. After writing biographies, I went back to writing critical studies, which I really enjoy. So I'm going back to my roots. And I did one on Ernst Lubitsch. How did Lubitsch do it? And uh, uh, Billy Wilder, a long critical study. And it, it, those are where you really immerse yourself in the work. Uh, it's not so much biographical as, uh, you know, an analysis of the work. And you bring in biographical details. But uh, I don't go out and interview 300 people. So when I did the Cohn brothers, I, I was doing a book called Two Chairs for Hollywood, which is a collection of my short articles over the years. <clears throat> excuse me and i wanted to um add some new things to it so it wouldn't just be all older material so i thought well the cone brothers are kind of misunderstood and you know i'd like to write a long piece on them so i did a 40 page essay on, on them a kind of a monograph in the midst of this long book and uh that forms the basis for the new book the holder in human comedy and uh the two chairs for hollywood has sold pretty well and uh you know it's uh it, but the cone part didn't get a lot of attention because it's, you know, embedded in this uh, several hundred page book. So I kind of thought, well, maybe I should break it out as a complete book and add to it. And then Anthem Press asked me, do you have a book you'd like to write? And I think they said a short book. And I thought, oh, I've always wanted to write a short book. It's, when I was younger, I wrote shorter books. And, and as I got older, they got longer because I think you see life in a more complex way, don't you, when you're older, you know? And uh, But I, I thought, well, yeah, I've got this um, monograph. And then I, I wrote a long uh, uh, analysis of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I, I love. And uh, to me, that's a perfect film to write about uh, to cap off the Coen brothers' work because it's a compendium of their work. It's six different stories, and it, it's a range from uh, farcical to, you know, black humor and very grim storytelling. And then there's a, a more um, well, since you know, since God bless you for loving to write so much and spending so much of your own money on doing the work that you love to do. Uh, since, you know, you didn't cash large checks, what were some of the most rewarding responses, responses from the writers and the directors about whom you wrote and lauded? Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, well, uh, Howard Hawks liked what I, I wrote about him, although the book came out after his death. Um, I'm trying to think. John Ford wrote me a letter. Uh, I did a piece with Mike Wilmington on the searchers, which helped bring the searchers into prominence. It was actually kind of forgotten when we wrote about it. And then our piece in Sight and Sound made it a really popular film again. And Ford uh, wrote a note. Um, he had his secretary call me and ask, uh, write me and ask me for a copy of the magazine. And then he said, I appreciate the upbeat, kindly way you treated me. Oh, which was okay. very nice. And I, I'd written him and I said, I'd like, to, you know, I'm thinking of doing a biography of you and I'd like, you know, your cooperation. And he said, I'm too old and tired to go in for a biog, a biog <laughs> even with a McBride. However, let me mull it over, which was kind of remarkable for Ford that he would even mull it over. And then I, I didn't contact him again. I, you know, I don't know why. I just thought, well, he's, you know, he was kind of intimidating and I, and I, I, I was not really working hard on the book at that time and but it turned out his grandson uh danford was doing a biography of him at the same time and that's one reason he didn't immediately leap at it but he was grateful for the book which i appreciated and uh and orson uh, wells must have absolutely loved you 
Oh, well, yes. Wells, when I met Wells in 1970, I had been, uh, I hadn't quite finished my, my first book on him, which was published by the British Film Institute in 1972, but I had been putting parts of it in magazines as a way of establishing myself as a Wells expert and helped me to sell the book. It was a clever idea and I recommend that to people. And I, I didn't know where he was. He was always in Europe and, and I, but I would mail uh, copies of the magazine articles to his lawyer in New York, Arnold Weisberger, who was the only contact I had for him. And uh, I had no idea if Wells got them, but Weisberger was giving him the articles. And so Wells knew the work. And, and when I met him, he said, finally, I made my favorite, film critic and i said oh, I see wow i said why why do you say that and he said because you're the only one who understands what i'm trying to do which i thought was really nice oh my gosh isn't that wonderful did i ever mention to you my review of alice doesn't live here anymore no i don't i don't know if i know that story oh uh well just, I, I'll tell it quickly in a minute because I was stunned by what happened. I used to, I, I, I was on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Mm-hmm. I got $150 Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So I got $450 a week and I never signed a contract mm-hmm. because they would have owned my material. I didn't want them to own my material. So anyway, I had been a f- fan. I had seen a, a short film by... Marty Scorsese. It was like a short documentary about an anti-war protester. It was almost never seen. And I I happened to uh, love it. So anyway, it was, I finished doing my review on, uh, on, a, on a Wednesday. Uh, and the next day, I heard that Warner Brothers was dumping Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore at the Westwood Theater in Westwood. Mm-hmm. You know, the part was first offered to Doris Day. Yeah, I heard that. That's true. Yeah, and so she turned it down. And the the girl who starred in The Exorcist, who was brilliant in it, and then Chris Christopherson is brilliant in it. I mean, really wonderful film. Anyway, I out of curiosity, I went to see it on Thursday night. At the Westwood Theater. There couldn't have been eight eight people in the theater. And I loved it. And it opened with what looked like a two-minute homage to The Wizard of Oz. Right. That only Marty Corsese could have done. It was just brilliant. And I loved the movie. So on Friday, I decided I was going to review the film. I I jumped what else I was going to review and I happen to say it was by far the greatest woman's movie that I have ever seen. Unfortunately, I saw it by myself. So tomorrow night, which is Saturday night, I'm going to take my wife to the Westwood Theater and we're going to see it. It was a full house on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And I always sat in the back row so I could get out quickly, you know. And everybody who came in saw me and said, Johnny, this better be good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the reaction was so big from that review that Marty called me on the phone. Mm. And he said, would you call my bosses at Warner Brothers and tell them to leave in that opening 
And I said, Mr. Scorsese, I can't call him Martin, Mr. You know, uh, this is the conflict of interest to me. I loved your movie. I'll make one phone call, but nothing more. So I made the phone call. They decided to release it largely, and it became a monster hit. A month later, he was interviewed by Calendar Magazine in Los Angeles. He devoted a whole page to thanking me for wow. saving his movie. So, that's so that's the joy of sometimes it's like what you're doing now. Now well, it's great though that you can, yeah. I mean, sometimes critics really have an impact, and I do vaguely remember now that there was some controversy about that ending because it was unusual and jarring. And it's kind of like, uh, remember New York, New York had very uh, sort of unreal, fantastical production design, and Variety's review by Jim Harwood mocked the film for being unreal he, he was sort of missed the point and, and uh, boris levin the uh, production designer called him up and said don't you realize we were doing this on purpose you know it's like the opening of alice doesn't live here anymore they were he was doing a fantasy thing that was setting you up for getting the mindset of the woman but you were the one who helped save that film that's terrific that's uh, great uh, yeah. that that is beyond rewarding to me and the other thing is as a critic I always enjoyed seeing a film I loved more than one that I didn't like, even though I got bigger laughs if I bombed a film. But, you know, when you can share something wonderful with people, as you do with your books now, to me, let's get, to me, the most frightening villain in all of film history. I know who you're going to say, yeah. Go ahead and say yeah. it. Yeah, the fellow in um, No Country for Old Men who kills people with this bizarre cattle-killing device. Javier. Oh, my God. You know, I used to think Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. That's really bad, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is no... What's the, the actor's name? Bardem? Is Javier, Javier Bardem, yeah. Yeah, and he does do an excellent job, by the way, in uh, being the Ricardos. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the film? I haven't seen that yet, actually. Uh, I haven't caught up with it, but I, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I will tell you this. Uh, the guy that plays Fred Mertz, he does these god-awful car commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, oh, God, I just wish somebody would forget to put on the brakes and run over the guy. The commercials <laughs> are horrible. But... Uh, Aaron Sorkin has written this guy such brilliant dialogue. Mm-hmm. He should be a runaway supporting actor winner for an Academy Award. But when you watch the film, which is really, really well done, you will realize that since it was done at the height of the blacklisting, now to me, the shortcoming in the film is Sorkin didn't make it look as horrible as it really was. Mm. But if Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball had not been as smart as they were, we would have never heard from them again. Well, it's interesting, um, not having seen the film, but Lucy was actually a communist. And that's ironic that back in the 30s, she briefly dallied with communism, as many people did. It was uh, not that unusual. 
Uh, but it came out right at the height of her stardom. And uh, she did a brilliant thing. She was a smart lady, and she played the goofy Lucy character in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. And, oh, I didn't know what I was doing, and my grandfather got me to sign the petition. And uh, you know, and and uh, but I think they they sort of said, okay, well, don't do it again. You know, she got away with it. I think partly because she was such a huge moneymaker for CBS that probably factored into the equation of Huac uh, allowing her to continue her career, but. She expressed uh, regret, et cetera, which you had to do, but she didn't have to name names or anything. She and uh, Desi Arnaz were supportive of Orson Welles, who was blacklisted. Uh, I got his FBI files, and he was being hounded by uh, the FBI from the time of Citizen Kane onward because Hearst sick Jadger Hoover on him. And uh, Wells, that's why he went to Europe, uh, I, I realized, and, and people hadn't focused on that. They thought he went to Europe because his career in Hollywood was in shambles, which was true. But he went there right after those HUAC hearings in the fall of 47 and, and pretty much stayed away until the uh, about 1956. He went to Hollywood and Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball put him on I Love Lucy. And then he also directed The Fountain of Youth for them, which is a very innovative TV pilot that unfortunately didn't go to series, but it was a great show. So they were supportive of him. And, you know, it, it, I'm fascinated by the blacklist. The guy you were mentioning who plays William Frawley is J.K. Simmons. Who's a terrific yes, actor. that's right. Thank he's, you. He's one of the Coen Brothers' favorites. For example, in Burn After Reading, which I think is a wonderful and underrated film, although it did well at the box office, he plays the head of the CIA, and he's, he's really funny. There's a great ending scene where he's kind of wrapping it all up in a really <laughs> hilarious way. Uh, and John Malkovich is great as this guy who's a disgraced CIA man who's writing his memoirs that get, uh, he, he loses them. And uh, Francis McDormand and Brad Pitt, who play a couple of uh, idiots, uh, try to sell the, try to sell it to the Russians who can't understand why they, they say that this, this manuscript is drivel. And McDormand, <laughs> McDormand thinks the guy is saying dribble. Now, this is an example of the Coen brothers uh, playing with language, but. Uh, you know, they, and, you know, John is so effective. He yeah. almost never speaks above a whisper, but he is so compelling to watch and listen to. He's, he's a drunk and he's, he's, you know, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's a funny, goofy, farcical film, but it has some serious underpinnings like the Coen brothers always do about the CIA and, uh, the kind of uh, nefarious things that they're up to. And then the idea that two people would sell out their country so that Francis McDormand can get plastic surgery is quite funny. It's, it's, John, John uh, Malkovich calls them a league of morons, which is a phrase that, that captures a lot of the Coen brothers' characters. They love their morons. They've said, you know, people say we're making fun of these people in a mean way. We're not. We love these characters. We, we just we have well, a lot of affection for them. There were no morons and no country for old men. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. And my gosh, just tell me a little bit about the impact that that movie might have had on you. I mean, yeah. that villain, 
was just unbelievable. Yeah, I, I, I was really drawn. I mean, he's so scary and frightening. I mean, there's a great scene toward the end. We remember um, Kelly McDonald is in a room with him and she realizes he's going to kill her. And he wants to play a, a sick game with her, uh, with her life, and she won't play the game. She shows a lot of courage, and then it cuts away, and you know that he's killed her. Uh, it's really one of the scary, scariest scenes you've ever seen, but there's no actual violence in it. But the, the, the center of the film is Tommy Lee Jones's performance as Ed Tom Bell, who's a lawman with a lot of rectitude, old-fashioned values. You know, his father was a, a sheriff, and, and he's – what the sad – part of the story is, and this is based on the novel by Cormac McCarthy, Ed Tom Bell is a representative of the older values of the old West. And they don't, they don't, they're no match for the modern world and serial killers and the kind of evil that's running around the world today. He, he just admits that he can't cope with it. He has no uh, way of handling it. And it's a, it's a very sad film. The ending is really great where he, he tells a dream that he had. He's retired and he talks to his wife and he said, I had this dream. And he talks about his dead father. And in the dream, he's going to see his dead father. Uh, he's going on horseback. And it's, it's a dream about his own mortality and about um, the values his father held and, and how they're elusive and they're all gone. And it's a very bleak look at america uh, but there, actually there is a there is a moron in the film which is uh the character played by josh brolin who uh at the beginning of the film he's the guy we're focused on and he comes upon a drug deal gone bad with a bunch of dead bodies and he picks up a suitcase full of money you remember and uh yeah. uh it, that was a fatal mistake because you know if you see that kind of scene get the heck out of there but he he, he tampers with it and so they're after him all through the film, and that's where Javier Bardem comes in. He's trying to pursue him, and but so you have this guy who's sort of a likable shit kicker, everyman kind of guy, but he makes this fatal mistake, which a lot of the Cohen, Cohen characters do, such as the guy in uh, Fargo is, is analogous. He's a, a lovable idiot, but he he makes this awful mistake by hiring these two hitmen. It's the kind of thing that you and I wouldn't do, but, you know, it's it's a ca cautionary tale of what can happen if we make a horrible mistake in life, you know. Well, uh, they were so brilliant because in the scene on the highway when he has to get another car or something and he takes up, takes out his contraption, he yeah. does it somebody and takes over the car. So we know how just horribly vicious and unfeeling he is. But there is a scene in a small store. Oh, yes. That's a great and, scene. And I think he takes out a coin. Yeah, that's that's the... I was alluding to that when I mentioned Kelly McDonald won't play this game with the guy, but the game was played with this store man who's a small part actor, and he's, he's playing a game with a coin for his life. In other words, like, if you win the game, you, I'll spare your life. It's really sick, and he winds up killing the guy and it just shows how he, as you say, he's completely heartless. He's almost like a, um, a machine or an yeah. inhuman You know character. what it was. You it's, can't kill him at the end either. Yeah. He keeps going on. Yeah. It's heads I win, tails you lose. Yeah. And I, yeah. you don't see him kill him, but Jesus, you just feel, oh my God. This, And then you're right. He gets stomped all over at the end and keeps on going. 
Yeah, you know, I, when I first saw it, I kind of thought, well, that, that device that he uses is kind of biz- so bizarre that I thought this is a little too bizarre. But then I realized it's sort of symbolic of, you know, it's about killing cattle. And that's what they did in the Old West or in the, even the modern West. They had to kill off their cattle for food. And um, uh, it is adapting a device which has become mechanized. In the old days, they would shoot or uh, otherwise kill the cattle with uh, low-tech devices, but now it's become high-tech. And so it sort of fits that it's it's a, a modern uh, Western way of killing that is uh, so high-tech you can't defeat it. And, and uh, it's, it's extremely uh, surreal almost, isn't it, the way he kills people with that thing? Oh, amazing. Now, you're being a member of the Academy and all the other things you have and all the awards you've gotten. Uh, I'm sure you probably got a DVD of Macbeth. Well, I'm a member of the American Cinema Editors, actually, and I'm also a member of the Writers Guild, although I'm retired from the Writers Guild, so I don't get their DVDs, but I get them because I'm a member of the American Cinema Editors. I was, I was surprised they made me a member. I was, uh, I wrote an article for their magazine, and they liked it so much they made me an honorary member. I oh. guess because I'm a film historian, which was very nice. I love editors, you know. So, well, if, if there are any of those films that you don't get, because like you, well, I'm still a member of the Writers Guild and mm-hmm. after SAG and all of that, so I get them all the time. If you ever run out of DVDs to look at, just give me a call. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't watch them all. But have you seen the Macbeth? Yes, I like that very much. Uh, that came out after I finished my manuscript on the Coens. And, you know, I, I wrapped it up with the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And then, uh, you know, it, it takes a few months to go through the production process. And then Joel uh, Cohn, I knew he was making the Macbeth film, but I hadn't seen it until the fall. Uh, it played at the New York Film Festival and it played in Europe. And uh, But I, I um, hadn't seen it until uh, late fall. So I wrote a note to the reader saying, OK, uh, bear in mind that they are not working together for a while and I quoted Carter Burwell, who's their uh, favorite composer, is saying, well, I don't, we don't really know what they plan to do. They don't know what they plan to do. And um, Ethan is off on his own and uh, maybe they'll get back together and make films. He said they have a bunch of scripts that they've written that uh, hopefully will get filmed. Well, with Macbeth, I must tell you, I am so glad they shot it in black and white. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, my gosh. It so suits it. And I am really surprised and impressed at how good Denzel Washington was. Yeah, he's done Shakespeare on the stage, um, and he's just a you know great actor too. And it was a really good take on on the story. You know, it's very similar in some ways to Orson Welles's Macbeth, which um, that's that's an interesting film. It was made on Republic Pictures sound stages, low budget studio. It was the only studio in Hollywood that would make a Shakespeare film, and it was low budget. And uh, people derided the film when it came out because it was very stylized mm-hmm. sets and. Uh, but, you know, now we look at that film and it is superb. And Joel uh, Cohn said he was inspired by it. Uh, it it's similar to, to what they did. Uh, it, that film, the Wells's film, I didn't like for a while. And it turned out that the studio had cut a lot of it and they redubbed the soundtrack because they said people couldn't understand the Scottish dialect. But actually, well, what happened was Richard Wilson, who was Wells's right-hand man, 
uh, managed to restore the film with Robert Gitt of UCLA in 1980, and they put put the film back the way it was originally. With there's one the murder scene of the king is fantastic. It's a 10 minute take. It's wow. aston- astonishing, kind of like Hitchcock was doing with Rope, but even better. Uh, but it's it's all a tremendous. Um, tension you know when you you don't cut the camera and it's it's at the foot of the stairs and lady Macbeth is is waiting and her husband kills the king and comes down and camera uh wells has several camera movements it's just brilliant and the soundtrack is wonderful and it's very intelligible wells said actually the scottish dialect slows down the rhythm of speech and it's actually more intelligible uh, I, I the only pro- one problem I had watching Joel uh, uh, Cohen's film is I kept hearing the line readings of Wells's version a little bit. You know, oh, I, had to, I had to keep clearing my head of that and watch watch it anew because uh, McDormand and Washington are so good, and uh, but they're different. You know, it's a different take. I mean, Macbeth has been the subject of several uh, good films. Polanski made a good one. Kurosawa made a good one. You know. Yes, indeed. And yet, when uh, I saw a really interesting interview. Was it uh, Joel who made it? Not Ethan. Was Joel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Joel uh, made it. But... He did an. Uh, uh, it was an extended interview he did by himself with Denzel Washington, then the wonderful actress who played Lady Macbeth, and then there was another actress I think who played all the witches. Oh my God! Oh yeah, she was amazing. Oh, yeah, she she's was amazing. And, but the first thing I said to my wife, I said, "You know, uh, they're going to have to hire." another black actor. And my wife said, why? Well, they can't have a white Macduff can killing Denzel Washington. Mm. They're going to have to have a black Macduff killing. So there it was. But the movie was really compelling. And, you know, I don't know that Denzel will win the award, but my God, he did a wonderful job. Well, they're superb. And uh, Catherine Hunter is the woman you mentioned, played the three witches through camera magic. And she's kind of a contortionist and she's a, a, br- a brilliant stage actress, but she's very unusual and she's astonishing in that role. And uh, it was Corey, like watching Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she is kind of a, a like a circus performer. The, the cast is uniformly good, and I, I like to, you know, the mixed casting, uh, uh, mixed race casting, or the colorblind casting, as they call it, is actually fairly common in in uh, Shakespeare productions on stage. And uh, Denzel Washington was in a film, a Shakespeare film that uh, Kenneth Branagh made a few years ago, and uh, uh, but I, I think that you know to instead of just having one black performer, they had a number of them. Yeah. And it kind of, it, it sort of makes it seem like not an not a, a unusual thing or not an issue. And that's, I think, part of what was the thinking involved. Just have good actors play the parts. And, and Well, uh, everyone blended in perfectly. I mean, they were all human yeah. beings. It was very, very, very good. Okay, now, one of the things that I want to do, you mentioned the end scene of No Country for Old Men. It's probably two or three minutes long. Yeah, the dream. Uh, yeah, he's telling his wife the dream, yeah. Yeah, because what I would like to do to augment this, I mean, aside from showing the great, I love the cover of your book, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and that actor, why did you pick that actor? Oh, uh, here it is, the holder in human comedy. Yeah. yeah uh, Sam Elliott, he plays uh, what's called the stranger in uh, Big Lebowski. He's the narrator of the film, and he has this kind of wry cowboy narration. Again, the cowboy motif uh, 
the cones are having fun with the Western motif. Uh, they think of Hollywood as the West. You know, they're guys from, they live in New York and they're from the Midwest. So Hollywood is kind of like the far West, which it is. And so he's, he, you know, it starts out with uh, tumbleweeds blowing through uh, the hills of Los Angeles and you see the lights of LA and then it goes to the dude who lives apparently, I guess, in Venice, California, you know, and, but the narrator pops up occasionally at the bowling alley and uh, he, he's got this wry sense of humor, but he, he, he's referring to uh, the dude as kind of a hero. He said, uh, you know, what's a hero? Uh, he's, he's, I guess he's a hero. And, and, but he's, he's talking about this, the whole darn human comedy is represented in this film. He gives you an attitude toward it that the Coens often have framing devices in their uh, stories of one kind or another and they, they like narration which Billy Wilder loved narration too and Wilder's rule in narration was don't have the narrator tell you what we're watching that's redundant have him add an attitude have him add something like Sunset Boulevard is a fabulous yeah. use of narration yeah. Yeah. A, a, de a dead yeah. screenwriter narrates from the swimming pool where he's floating yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a wonderful way of letting him rewrite his life as a movie I, kind of, I just wanted to interrupt you, many because you're talking about heroes. You know what? Because I mentioned uh, Red Fox was my mentor when I started as a comic. Oh, was he really? Yeah. Yeah, he and one of, one of my only lifelong friends in the business. Wow. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was the first one to put him on Variety Television, which led to Sanford. And that's his real name, John Sanford. Yeah, yeah. And so you helped him uh, get get that boost there. That's that, great. Yeah. So anyway, in, in any event, he heard me talking often about uh, Jim Garrison. And he says, because I called Jim a hero. And he said to me, John, heroes ain't born. They're cornered. <laughs> that's a good phrase. And that's it. Because Garrison, as you know, was cornered by accidentally meeting the only dissenting member of the Warren Commission, Hale Boggs, yeah, who yeah. said, you know, he couldn't have fired that. So anyway, give me a couple of uh, that scene. I would like to add to this uh, to enhance the value of your wonderful interview. Could you think of another scene that you might want me to include in this? Could I just give you a little side thing on red fox i can't resist yeah. telling yeah. telling you my little connection with red fox it didn't quite work out but when i when i moved to hollywood i i was writing scripts and i, I wrote five before i wrote one that was any good and i i wrote an original script that i wanted to make red fox a movie star i thought this guy was so good i loved his blue records they called them you know oh the, yeah the the chitlin circuit nightclub yeah. black nightclub yeah. records they were really uh, uh raunchy extremely raunchy hilarious records i thought this guy is, is a brilliant comedian so i wrote a a, a serial comic film of, uh, about an old uh, man uh who's a model citizen his last day on the job at age 65 and he, he kind of goes berserk through a series of problems that happen and he cuts loose and it was a good script and i wanted i, I wrote it with red fox in mind and i got to hollywood and i tried to get it to fox and and uh, nobody would you know, the agents weren't interested in him because, you know, I said this guy should be a movie star, but, they, you know, they didn't know who he was or whatever. And finally, I met Red Fox at some Hollywood event. He was surrounded by a bunch of guys. He had already by that time become a star in Sanford and Son, but he still hadn't cracked into the film business. And um, he said, yeah, I'll read it, send it, send it to me. And I, I sent it to him. And I'm still waiting for a response, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> and I, I learned a lesson. Don't write a script that only one actor could do. 
uh, what I should have done was rewritten it for other uh, black uh, actor it's comedians. A, it's a great idea for a movie, but I must tell you, sadly, even though he would, as a matter of fact, you may remember when he was having, he was getting $25,000 an episode for Sanford. And he kept calling uh, uh, Bjork and Lear the Jews weren't generous enough to him. Oh. You may recall that he was complaining that he didn't have a window in his dressing room. Well, I remember he was causing some issues, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the, his dressing room was in the basement. What's he want a window for? To look <laughs> at a, a parking lot, for God's sake? Well, when he left NBC to hide, he came to our house. That's That's where he was. And I helped him write the contract that got him to leave Norman, which I wish he'd never done. And he went to yeah. ABC and he bombed. But sadly, success went to his nose. Well, I felt that. I mean, I felt that he didn't handle success well, you know, because he became this big TV star. It was a great show, Sanford and Son. But then, as you say, you know, personality issues came into four and he kind of blew it. And then he, he never made it as a film star. He made a bad movie called Norman Is That You, which was actually oh. filmed in videotape. And it was kind of a dumb play. That, 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 that was George Slaughter. Yeah, that was not a good uh, oh, entry into film. So, so he bungled his chance to be a movie star. But, you know, part of it was Hollywood. How did, you know, they didn't know how to handle uh, an older guy who's a black uh, entertainer who was unique like Red Fox. Yeah, I, but I, the problem was he didn't know how to handle himself. Yeah, no, it's I, hard. It's hard. I must, I must tell you, you know, Sinatra at one time was going to kill himself. I mean, that's how bad and far down he got. Yeah, yeah. And yet he knew how to hold himself together. Well, he came out of the old studio system. And, you know, I've talked to people like Jimmy Stewart said, you know, the old studio system was great for actors because they, they you know, they kind of controlled their careers and they had a sense of what roles they're good for. And, and today the actors are all on their own and they often make bad choices. And Stewart also said, you know, if you weren't acting in a film they, that you'd be getting fencing lessons or dancing lessons or singing lessons or whatever, there was something about the old system that, you know, gave people a, a longer and more coherent career. But a lot of good people uh, self-destructed like Red Fox did. And that's a sad thing. But, you know, he should have done my script. What can I say? But, you know, well, uh, I it's... It shows why I like the Coen Brothers because there's a mixture of zany comedy and, and some dark stuff. Actually, it got a little too dark. Some people said there was a scene uh, in there where he, he kills a dog, and, and I realized, oh yeah, you shouldn't have your hero hero kill a dog. Uh, I could have uh, had him just sort of. I was thinking he should have fed the dog some soap or something where foam would come out of the mouth. It would have been funny, but he wouldn't be dead. Oh my God. <laughs> Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. You remember Sam? Oh, I had I went out to drink with him the <laughs> night of Orson Welles' AFI Life Achievement Awards. Somehow I wound up afterwards in a well, Mexican, I gotta tell Mexican you. restaurant with Sam Peckinpah and Ray Bradbury. Oh, that's the whole story in itself. I uh, I, I I had reviewed uh, Getaway and I said to compliment and I complimented a couple of scenes and I said but to compliment just a couple of scenes in this movie is like complimenting Tijuana for the one toilet that flushes well he called the most he was drunk he was gonna cut off my head and piss down my throat Jeez. but I had tried to explain to him 
that he did one of the best westerns ever made called The Westerner with Brian Keith. Oh, that series, yeah. That's great. In the 50s. And I saw it as a kid and I fell in love with this scene because he said the killing of the dog. Brian Keith is out in the desert and there's no water around and he's got a little pouch and he shakes it and you hear there are a couple of drops of water left there and the camera looks down at his dog who's got his tongue out and panting at his knees like that. You think, oh, well, the guy's going to give the dog the water. He pushes the dog away and drinks (laughs) the water. So I told told Sam, I said, that's what I fell in love with was that that beck and pause. Well, he he was, uh, you know, an erratic talent, but a genius. And uh, Getaway was pretty good, although Ali McGraw can't act, unfortunately. Yeah, but, you know, there was Stephen Queen was a great actor and uh, there's some terrific scenes in there. And uh, but, you know, Peckinpah was another guy who unfortunately self-destructed. But before he did, he made some really great films. But the Coens, you know, I think one reason that I like them as they've sustained a good long career. And actually an interesting point came up recently when uh, Joel was asked about their hiatus. This is after my book uh, was finished. He said, well, you know, Ethan didn't want to work on uh, Macbeth, but I'm not sure we'll work together. But uh, they, they, uh, they admitted they never planned to work together as brothers as long as they did. They didn't sit there and say when they were young guys, we're going to be a brother team and work together our whole lives. Now, you know why it worked out? Because it's a happy accident. Yeah, it's a happy accident. They they said we just sort of fell into it and we kept working together and it worked out fine. But they're individuals too, and uh, you know we'll see more of you know what defines each. There is kind of one reason I think the critics have had a hard time pigeonholing them. Part of it is they don't like being pigeonholed and they, and they defy it. But uh, they're not. It's not just one filmmaker. If it's one filmmaker, you can get a handle on him or her like you do Peck and Pa or. Mm-hmm. Uh, Orson Welles or whatever, but with two guys, it's hard to know where one ends and one begins because they really work together as directors and writers and producers. And uh, they, you know, as any good collaboration, you know, uh, you can't separate the two. Uh, it's because they're working in harmony together, and also their scripts are so beautifully written. They're uh, fabulous. So they're like like Billy Wilder. I'll just say they they insisted on the actors doing the lines the way they were written to no absolutely so. What are you thinking of doing next? So give us the last word and what you well, think. Well, that's a good question. I just did four books that came out in a brief period. I did one on the Kennedy assassination called Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy, which I've been working on off and on for a long time. And, it's a and in fun. the fall, you and I are going to spend another hour or so on that. That would be great. I know you and I share that as one of our main interests. That's actually my major interest in life. I'd say films are secondary, oddly enough, even though that's been my career. And I did an updated version of my book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent Career. And I did the Billy Wilder book, which is a big, long project. And so I'm kind of taking a little breather and hiatus right now to think about what I might do next. Uh, And I I don't really have a... uh, concrete plan and i'm going to take it easy for a little while but you know when when you come out with books you, you do uh, they let you out of the cage for a while because <laughs> you're trapped in your room uh, writing for years and then they let you out for a month or two to talk about the books and it's fun you get to talk to people like you and it's that's kind of the reward the cherry on top well of i i gotta leave you with my favorite favorite quote about writing 
and it's in my book, and that's Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Parker said, I hate writing, <laughs> but I loved having written. Right. She also did a version of that. She said, most people in Hollywood don't want to write. They want to have written. And that is so true. <laughs> you, know, you, you go to parties with people and they say, well, you know, I, I, you know I've, I wrote a book once and, you know, they live on that for the rest of their lives. But uh, I'm a working writer and I like to write. I mean, that's the motor that keeps me going. I've been doing this since May of 1963. And uh, it, it's unusual for me not to be working on a book. Uh, but uh, you know, Well, so to me... I'm absolutely thrilled that you're writing because I love the reading of your writing. Thank you. And the title of the book again is the whole darn human comedy life according to the Coen brothers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. again. Nobody did. I enjoy talking movies with more than I do. Uh, That's so nice to hear. Thank you. You're fun to talk to Jim. uh, Thanks. Okay. We will meet again in the fall. Oh, I'd love to. Anytime. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. The next Talking Movies may be one of the most important and most interesting that we have ever done. In that show, Donald Jeffries and Leno Sanic of Black Op Radio out of Vancouver, Canada, and I are going to assemble half of the do- a half a dozen are the most important and the most profound and the most perfect films ever made about the murder of John Kennedy and Jim Garrison's solved investigation. It will be an absolutely must-watch show. And so, till then, good luck.